Amen. A hallelujah, right? Everybody was saying hallelujah at one time. That was pretty amazing. Uh, but we're going to jump right in today. In 1917, Frederick Martin Lehman wrote the hymn titled The Love of God. Maybe you know it. Maybe you don't. It's probably my favorite hymn of all time. And so what we're going to do is I'm just going to read it, and it's going to be on the screen here. So you can either follow along or you can kind of close your eyes and just let the words kind of hit you, depending on how, what type of learner you are, right? Some of you are visual, some of you, you hear, learn by hearing, whatever the case may be. And so let's just read The Love of God by Frederick Martin Lehman. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints' and angels' song. Listen, how beautiful are those words. How beautiful are those words? How powerful are those words of worship? But more than that, how hopeful are they? Right? When you really read these and listen to this song, how hopeful are they? I love that last part. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure. God's love shall forevermore endure everything that's going on in our life. His love continues and it continues and it continues. And of course, the picture he drew for us, this idea that we're all scribes, we all have a stock. If the ocean is the ink and we were to write the love of God, we would drain the ocean dry because it would never stop. These are words of hope that we see here. These are words of worship. Listen, there's been a lot of weight so far in our uh, message series in Revelation, especially the last few weeks. We've been kind of wading through some pretty heavy waters, but today in Revelation chapter 19, we're going to see a shift. We're going to see a change. Instead of weighty words, we're going to see unhindered, loud worship. Instead of heaviness, we're going to see a wedding feast. And instead of doom, we're going to see victory. And really, ultimately, we are going to see hope unfold. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 19. And if you don't have it, it's going to be on the screen for you this morning. And so we're just going to jump right in. But let me pray real quick. God, we thank you for the opportunity that we get to come and worship today. God, I pray that through your word today that you would speak to our hearts and that we would not leave this room unchanged, Lord, that you would speak to us on a spiritual, intimate level so we can know you more. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's jump right into Revelation 19, starting in verse 1. Starting in verse 1. 
John says, after this, I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting, hallelujah, or praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. He has punished the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the murder of his servants. And again, their voices rang out, hallelujah, praise the Lord. The smoke from that city ascends forever and ever. Now, what John is describing to us is the response of what just happened in Revelation chapter 18. So if you weren't here with us last week, you need to go back and read Revelation 18. But there in Revelation 18, we see God's judgment taking place on Babylon. I'm not going to get into that, but you can go read it. But what I want to point out here today is notice that John doesn't describe what he sees. That's kind of been the trend in Revelation. He basically describes what he's seen, his vision. But here, he's describing what he hears. He hears a vast crowd shouting. Now, I think we all can say that we've been a part of a big crowd at some point where they're all shouting at the same time, right? Those crowds get pretty loud, don't they? I can remember my oldest daughter. We went to a, a playoff high school basketball game for my, one of my brother-in-laws, and they were super far. This was like they were almost to the state championship in Pennsylvania. And we go and we sit right in, in the midst of the parents, and my oldest daughter's like one at the time. She has no clue what's coming to her, right? The tip-off happens, and all of a sudden, the first basket for our team, those parents shouted like I've never heard before in my life. It was kind of a little over the top for parents, all right? So parents, you need to tone it down a little bit, okay? <laughs> it was so loud, my daughter cried, and she wouldn't even go back. So, I, like, I missed the entire game because I'm running and chasing a one-year-old, okay? Now, I can say that I've done that as well. My daughter just played volleyball, and she got it over the net, and I yelled as loud as I could, okay? She's eight, so. But listen, we've all been a part of a crowd shouting. We've experienced that on a level we're here on earth, right? I want you to really imagine the sound of a vast crowd in heaven shouting one thing, hallelujah. We were just singing that, weren't we? I want you just to picture how loud and in unison that would be. I want you to imagine the praise that is happening in heaven at this point. John hears a vast crowd shouting the word hallelujah. That word hallelujah means praise the Lord. We put hallelujah in parentheses because in the NLT, they actually just go and they, they, they go to the what it means, so they, they put in praise the Lord in there. Other versions just put in the word hallelujah. It's the same thing. The word hallelujah means praise the Lord. Hallelujah, this word is a very powerful Old Testament word. In fact, there's many psalms based on this idea of hallelujah or praise the Lord. But then in the New Testament, guess what? It's only found four times, and guess where? Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, we see it four times. What's beautiful about this word is that it's a universal word. Do you know what the word hallelujah is in Portuguese? Hallelujah. Do you know how they say it in India? Hallelujah. Right? It's a universal word. 
It's a word that goes beyond race, language, time, space. It unites heaven and earth in praise. And this crowd in heaven is shouting it with a deafening shout. But we have to ask the question, why? Why are they shouting this word, hallelujah? Well, we see it in the text. We see it in the text. Revelation 19, 1 through 2, they shout hallelujah for his salvation. They shout hallelujah for his glory. They shout hallelujah for his power. They shout hallelujah because of his true and just judgments. They shout hallelujah for the punishment of the notorious prostitute, which, if, again, if you weren't with us, you need to go read it. It's in prior in Revelation. They shout hallelujah because he avenges the blood of his servants. They're shouting hallelujah because there's finally justice. They're shouting hallelujah because there's finally justice. They are shouting for what all of our hearts long for. Don't all of us long for justice against pain and suffering in this world? Isn't that something that all of us want and long for in life? Well, it's here in Revelation 19. We see it come into fruition. You see, these words tell us something very vivid about God. It tells us that God is true that God is loving, that God is just, and that God keeps his promises. Because if you go back to Genesis 3.15, guess what? God promises that what's about to happen is going to take place. God promises justice will happen, and here we see it. Here we see the impact of the sound of worship. And the sound of worship is something we should all desire to hear in our lives now and then as well. And so we're going to continue on. John continues on in Revelation 19, 4 through 5. He says, Then the 24 elders and the four living beings fell down and worshiped God, which is something they do time and time again, all the way back to Revelation 4 and 5. Who was sitting on the throne? They cried out, amen, here's our word again, hallelujah, or praise the Lord. And from the throne came a voice that said, praise our God, all his servants, all who fear him, from the least to the greatest. So after John hears this crowd, he then sees the elders and the creatures fall down and worship God. And then all of God's people together in agreement say two words now. Instead of just hallelujah, they say hallelujah or amen first and then hallelujah. This is a picture of all the angels and the humans with one mind and heart coming together in adoration and praise of God and worship of God. And they cry out together that word amen. This is the second word we're going to look at today. The word amen means we agree or let it be so or my favorite, so be it, right? So be it. The word symbolizes that they are unified in worship. It symbolizes that they are unified in worship. And this is why corporate worship is so important. This is why what we're doing here this morning is so important. Because it shows our unity under one banner, and that's the banner of Jesus. You see, when we sing together, we show unity and togetherness, and we hear a glimpse of the sound of worship that will be sung in heaven. Do you realize that from a week-to-week basis? You are catching a glimpse of the worship that will take place in heaven today. When we sing, we see that unity. When we pray together, we see this word amen as well, don't we? 
You see, what's so interesting is that this word amen is something we end every prayer with. Have you ever wondered why? Children ask that all the time. You know what? One thing I think is so adorable is when kids will say the end at the end of a prayer instead of amen, right? Because to them, it makes no difference. They're so used to seeing the end after something. And so it's so cute when they're praying and all of a sudden they're like, the end, I'm done. But that's not what it means. It's not an ending to a statement. It's a unifying statement saying, listen, we agree to this. Let it be so, God. And so when we pray in adoration, when we pray with confession, and when we pray with thanksgiving, and when we pray with supplication or asking God, we don't end it with just like a, okay, whatever. We end it and say, let it be so, God. Hear my prayer. And so we see this unity in worship. We see this unity in our prayer. And then ultimately, there are some times where people are up here saying, talking, and then you'll hear people shout out, amen. There's another form of unity as well. They're saying, we agree with what you're saying. You guys aren't doing it today. It's a little little quiet today, okay? But sometimes you hear that, right? And maybe you're in here today wondering, why do people shout out amen all the time? Well, this is why. We agree. After an awesome song that we sing and we worship God, you hear people say amen. It's because we agree. Let it be so. It's that unifying factor in our lives. The beauty of this, the beauty of this word, amen, is that we can all disagree on many things in this world today. You and I probably disagree on some things that are going on in this world. It's just, that's just the truth. Okay, you probably disagree with the person next to you on some things that are happening in this world. But yet, when we come into this room today, we can all come together under one banner, the banner of Jesus, and we can say the words, amen, let it be so, can't we? Ah, some of you caught that, yes! We can all join together and declare hallelujah, can't we? Amen. We can all join in together with the choir of heaven for one purpose, one goal, and one God. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. See, there's some interaction that can happen here. It's a good thing. You see, that brings unity. That brings togetherness. That brings us all together under the banner of Jesus Christ. I love what John Piper says. He says, corporate worship is the public savoring of the worth of God. The public savoring of the worth of God and the beauty of God and power of God and the wisdom of God. And therefore, worship is an open declaration to all the powers of heaven and to all of Babylon, which remember, God just, he just gave his judgment to Babylon in Revelation 18, that we will not prostitute our minds and our hearts and our bodies to the allurements of the world. Though we may live in Babylon, the world, we will not be captive to Babylonian ways We will celebrate with all of our might the awesome truth that we are free from that which will be destroyed. That's why they're praising God today. There's so much that goes into our worship here, week after week after week. And in fact, shameless plug here, we have a chapel class coming up that's literally titled The Why of Worship. And so if you wonder why we do what we do on Sunday mornings, That chapel class is happening right here at the Port Clinton campus. 
those dates, those times. It's a two-day class, a Friday night, a Saturday morning. And I'm telling you, if you wonder why we do what we do, if you wonder why we sing the songs, why do we sing, why do we pray, why do we speak, why do we do all these things, come to the class and learn. Move one step closer, okay? And so please, please come out to that. And so we see the sound of worship, we see corporate worship. John continues and he actually turns everything up a notch. Or in other words, God turns some, everything up a notch. John continues, Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of a mighty ocean, ocean waves, or the crash of loud thunder. Hallelujah! Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice, and let us give honor to him, for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And so John explains to us that the sound of worship elevates to the level of a mighty ocean or loud thunder. But what we need to point out here is that there is a shift in worship. The past few verses were all worshiping God for what previously happened in Revelation 18. But here we see a shift in worship to what's about to happen, or in other words, pointing forward. So the worship points forward here, not backwards. It points to the anticipation of the wedding of the Lamb. Or in other words, the anticipation of our hope. And guess what? In our lives, our worship needs to be the same as well. Rather than just worshiping backwards always, we need to worship forward as well. And let me explain this a little bit. A lot of times, and rightly so, we worship God for what he has done for us, right? What God has done for us, what we can never do for ourselves. We worship God for that, for Jesus, and for the work on the cross and what he has done. But you cannot just worship for what he has done because God's not just in the past. God's also in our future, and we get to worship for what God will do. We get to worship God in anticipation for what we're about to read here. For the victory that we have through Jesus and seeing it come into fruition. For us coming together and worshiping all together in heaven. And so our worship here on earth cannot just be backwards. It needs to be backwards. Trust me. That's good. But also, we need to worship God in anticipation for what he will do. We need to be looking forward to the day. Be ready for the day that Jesus returns. And so we need to worship forward and backwards. And so look at this, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him for the time has come. So they're worshiping God for what's about to happen. The time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb and his bride has prepared herself. Not only is there a huge shift in Revelation 19 here, worshiping forward, but it's actually right here in the Bible that there's a whole shift in the Bible too. Okay, let me explain. From Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, Adam, Eve, and all of humanity to follow have, because of sin and shame, have run and hid from God. From Genesis 3, 7, all the way till Revelation 19, 5, all of humanity, because of our sin, In shame of that sin, we all want to run and hide from God. That's usually our our go-to, isn't it? 
We all want to kind of cover up all of our sin. We all want to hide from God. If you remember the story in Genesis, that's exactly what Adam and Eve do. They sin against God. They realize their nakedness and they go hide. And that's exactly what we've been doing. But here, we actually see a shift. Instead of running from God because of our shame and guilt, you know what happens here? Is that everybody runs to God for this wedding feast. There's a whole shift here. All the sinners gathered together for a wedding feast, but now there's no shame. There's no hiding. There's no guilt. There's no fear. It's right here we see a huge shift. Paul Tripp says these sinners are celebrating because the bond that was broken in the garden has been restored. They have been wed to their Savior forever. For, forever they will be in his presence. Never again will they be separate from him. Never again will they hide. Never again will they be driven away. Their fellowship will never end. The sound of their celebration will never grow quiet. The amazing part of this is that for those who believe and have faith in Jesus, we're going to be there. Amen? For those of us who have faith and trust in Jesus and his resurrection, we will experience this worship. We will experience this separation. We will experience no fear, no shame, no guilt. We will celebrate. It will never go quiet. It will never end. We'll never be driven away. We'll never be separate. We'll always be in his presence and we'll be wed to our Savior forever. Just shift. It's looking forward to this day. To this day. There's a deafening sound of worship here because this marks the long-awaited day when the Lord and his bride, the church, will be wed. And if you underline in your Bibles anything today, let it be Revelation 19.9. I don't have it on the screens, but it says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Underline it in your Bibles. So after the worship, we see our hope unfold even more. It continues. The story gets better, I promise you, okay? God's word is powerful. So let's continue in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. This is the second coming of Jesus. And so John continues, then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. By the way, this is one of my favorite passages of all time, okay? Its riders was named faithful and true, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood. His title was the Word of God. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What we need to note here is the contrast, okay? This is Jesus, mind you, the word of God. This is Jesus returning on a white horse. But what we need to note here is the contrast between Jesus's first coming and Jesus's second coming. That's kind of what the, John is explaining to us here. He's showing us the picture of Jesus's second coming, but it only has weight when you look at the first coming, which is Jesus coming born of a virgin, Mary, right? We're going to celebrate that in a few months. Are you guys ready? We were just talking about what we were going to get our kids last night. Crazy. 
Jesus coming, born of a virgin, compared to here, his second coming. Listen, in his first coming, he came with humility and full of grace, didn't he? With humility and full of grace. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Go read it. At his second coming, he comes with glory and power. Instead of riding in on a donkey into Jerusalem, he comes on a white horse. Instead of coming with humility and meekness, he comes with majesty and power. Instead of being reject, the rejected Messiah or the suffering servant, he is now recognized by all as Lord. Instead of seeking and saving the lost, he comes to judge and rule as king. Instead of being born as a baby, he comes as God in all his splendor. Here we see Jesus in all his glory. Amen? We see Jesus in all his glory. Jesus arrives as a warrior who will now defeat those who oppose him. Check this out. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast. Miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who had worshipped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding on the white horse, and the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. Listen, the description in me just reading that passage was longer than the actual battle itself, Okay? The actual battle that's going to take place will be way faster than that. It's not going to be a good fight. Don't tune in. You want to know why? Because when God determines to win a battle, it's like Swindoll says, it's curtains, right? It's done. It's curtain. When God determines to win a battle, it's done. There's no wondering who will win. God will prevail. Let that sink in. When God is in a battle, God will prevail. And so I want you to think about your life a little bit right now. What are you battling with God? Is there something in your life that you're battling with God? Wrestling with him? I hate to break it to you. God's going to prevail in your life, okay? God's going to win. I promise you that. He's going to win in the end, and he can win in your life as well. And what it takes for us is just to kind of give up our lives to him because he deserves it, doesn't he? God prevails. You see, today we saw the sound of worship. This deafening sound of people coming together shouting, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for what God has done. We also see corporate worship where they say, amen, hallelujah, where they're looking forward to the anticipation. So be a unifying corporate worship, looking backward and also looking forward. Well, what are they looking forward to? They're looking forward to this wedding feast that they're invited to. Now, we do no longer have to run from God. We no longer have to hide from God, but yet we can walk confidently into the wedding feast knowing that we've been invited. And then we see Jesus return today. We see Jesus riding in on a white horse. We see Jesus conquering the enemy. We see God prevailing in this world. 
And these are the things that we can have hope in. This is hope unfolding right before our eyes. And this is hope we are going to experience. And so what do we do with it? What do we do with it? How do we respond? It's very simple. We just, we need to be prepared, okay? Plain and simple. We need to be prepared. Prepare yourself by enduring hardship and remaining faithful. Enduring hardship and remaining faithful. That's kind of the theme of Revelation. It's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. You got to remain faithful to God along the journey. Remain faithful. Continue to worship. Continue to sing hallelujah. Praise God. Okay? We need to prepare yourself by obeying God to take the gospel to all tribes, languages, peoples, and nations. This just means taking the gospel, the good news of Jesus that has changed your life and bringing it to your friends and your family and your community. Right? That's it. Bring that news to people who desperately need to hear this story, God's story that he's going to prevail, that there is hope. And last, we need to live a life remembering victory is ours through Christ. You will not win apart from Jesus. Plain and simple. You will not win apart from Jesus. And so because of that, may we stay faithful, may we keep trusting, and may we continue to worship and work in unity until the day Jesus returns. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for these words of Revelation 19. We thank you for the sound of worship, for the corporate worship, for the wedding feast, and for the victory and the return of Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would worship you for what you have done. God, on a daily basis, remind us of the good news of Jesus. But also, God, on a daily basis, help us to worship for what will happen. Help us not to lose sight of that, of where we are going, where you are. God, because that's going to drastically change who we are today. And so, God, I pray that we would not leave this room unchanged, that you would grip our hearts, that you would move us one step closer to you. And, God, that you would use us as your ministers of reconciliation in this world. 